We're taking a brief break in our series on the book of the Twelve, the Minor Prophets, to give attention to one phrase in this letter that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. It's the phrase, side by side. You'll see it in Philippians 1.27. We studied through this short letter that Paul wrote. We studied through it as a church, actually, in May and June and July. And uh, we were doing that in our midweek series. And ever since then, I've been chewing on this phrase, wanting to return to it, give more attention to it, and give more public attention to it, that our whole church would consider it. Twice I've had it planned and then postponed it. And finally, about a month ago, we determined today would be the date that our whole worship would focus on Philippians 1 and we would give attention to this phrase. So here we are. In the uh, very first verse of Philippians 1, Paul identifies himself as the writer. And if you're not familiar with Paul, let me just say that until he was about 30 years old, he was an extremist, we might say a religious terrorist. He terrorized Jesus' followers. He put some to death. Yet it was a few years after the resurrection of Jesus that he was miraculously converted by encountering Jesus himself. And as he writes this letter, he's now about 60 years old. He had planted this church in the Roman colony of Philippi about 10 years before, probably in his early 50s. And he is now in prison, in a Roman prison. And he is writing to this church that he loves, the church he planted, he loves. And they're now struggling, even though they're continuing to grow. They're growing and struggling, which is the case of many, many churches, including ours. Even though Paul writes from a Roman prison, one of the things you may have picked up from the scripture reading earlier is that he is not depressed. Shockingly, he's dominated by joy. He's full of thankfulness to God for the church. He's always praying for them with joy, he says. He is full of confidence that God's going to work all things together for good. He's going to work God's going to work Paul's imprisonment out for the furtherance of the gospel. He's confident that God is going to keep working in the lives of these struggling church members so that they're going to complete, he's going to complete what he's begun. They're going to finish their course and stand before Jesus and everyone's going to be filled with joy. He's filled with joy. Despite his circumstances, he's not depressed. Now, up to this point in the letter, we're going to pick up reading in verse 27. Paul has essentially told the church how he's doing. And here in verse 27, his, his uh, tone shifts to instructing them how they should live. These are Paul's words. They are God's words to us through Paul. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaging in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. That's all we'll read today. Paul's main point here is something I put like this. In view of the opposition from enemies of the gospel, 
The church must walk worthy of the gospel, being both unified and fearless. In view of the opposition that consistently comes from enemies of the gospel, believers in gospel-preaching churches should pursue unity with each other, and they should live without fear of their enemies. Pursue unity with each other. Live without fear of your enemies. We walk worthy of our call by pursuing unity, by living fearlessly. We're going to get to especially the first of those, how we pursue unity. It's like the second half of the message. But I want to walk through this passage very briefly before we get there. I think it's critical to answer really two questions. The first is, what kind of opposition were they facing? And can we relate to it 2,000 years later here in America? What kind of opposition were they facing? The second question is, what does Paul mean by walking worthy? Those are the two questions we're going to ask and then unpack the unity and the fearlessness and then land on this side-by-side, pursuing a side-by-side kind of life as believers. First question is, what kind of opposition did the church face and can we relate to it? Well, to get an idea of it, I think you could look at a couple different points in the book and you could also go back to the record of Paul's church planting in Philippi in Acts 16. There are at least four different kinds of opposition that he faced. He describes in chapter 2, verse 16, that the Philippians faced opposition from their crooked and twisted generation. In chapter 3, he notes that they faced opposition from a religious culture that was dominated by legalism and false teaching, that is, Keeping the rules are going to earn you a relationship with God. That's legalism. He indicates at the end of chapter 3 that the church was facing opposition from former believers who had deconverted. It's the word of the day. They had deconverted and they began living instead for the here and now. What you see is all there's ever going to be. So live it up now. And then you add to that the description in Acts 16 of what Paul faced in his planting of this congregation. And you get the idea that there were anti-Christian businesses, those who were making money off of fortune-telling. There were anti-Christian public sentiments. Public opinion was very strongly against Christians. And there were anti-Christian politicians In fact, who threw Paul in prison in Philippi when he was planting the church. And I'm going to argue, I'm going to try to give a few examples, that even though we live in a much freer civilization today, we still face basically the same opposition, even though thankfully it's not usually as violent. We live in a twisted generation. We live in a generation today where pretty much the highest value is you be you. This means that we are self-centered rather than God-centered. David Leonhardt recently reported, polls consistently show that the majority of Americans, 60 to 70% in recent polls by both Gallup and Pew, say they do not want the Supreme Court to overturn Roe. And he goes on to explain that this sort of support for Roe versus Wade 
has been consistent since the 1970s. He's saying multiple pollsters for decades have shown generally Americans don't want Roe versus Wade overturned. Now we've been through a week in which the Supreme Court is hearing cases in which Roe could be potentially overturned. And I'm telling us that no matter what way the Supreme Court decides, we live in a generation that is twisted. The majority of people for the last 50 years have said, let it stand. That's our generation. We live in a culture that's dominated by false teaching, legalism. In our new members orientation, I always point out that two-thirds of the people who live in our ministry area and call themselves Christians are either sacramental people who believe that following the sacraments of the church will grant them eternal life, or they go to churches that believe universalism, that is, that everyone will be reconciled to God in the end. Our culture is dominated by false teaching. We live in a world of many popular deconverted Christians, or that's what they're called today. I've talked about this in recent months, so I won't go on here, but one of the most famous is Bart Ehrman. He was trained as a conservative pastor and ended up at Princeton deconverting. That's how he'd say it. And he now teaches New Testament at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, in many of his books, in which he teaches that the New Testament can't be trusted. Jesus was definitely not God. They've been New York Times bestsellers. Now, if you're getting sucked into Bart Ehrman, you need to know that he uses a lot of poor arguments and they've been easily refuted and responded to multiple times. But this is the culture. Best-selling author is a deconverted Christian. We also live in a day of anti-Christian businesses, don't we? It's become quite clear, especially over the last year, that the biggest businesses in our country and the biggest businesses in the world, companies like Amazon, Apple, Google, Disney, Facebook, or what's called Meta now, these businesses oppose biblical Christianity. For example, all of these companies endorse the Equality Act, which prioritizes immoral sexual rights over religious freedom. Those of us who live in the relatively free United States still face the same kinds of opposition that the Philippian believers faced. And in view of this kind of opposition, Paul says, live as citizens of heaven. Conduct yourselves in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. It's this kind of context that, that the commands grow out of, right? Second question. What does it mean to live worthy of the gospel? I first say what it doesn't mean. Paul clearly doesn't mean that we have to make ourselves worthy. You live worthy and eventually God will accept you. That's not at all what he's saying, but many people misread it that way. He cannot mean make yourself worthy because of the way he talks throughout the entire letter. 
He's going to emphasize just a few paragraphs later for, later, for example, that we can't earn a relationship with God. We can't earn rewards from God. He says, you can't put any confidence in human effort. You have to count all of your goodness, all of your obedience to the law as garbage. That's what he's going to say in chapter 3. It's not like we're obeying to make ourselves worthy of, of acceptance by God. That's not at all what Paul has in view. Instead, he's going to say, we're going to have to rely entirely on Jesus to make us right with God and to give us eternal life. Jesus, the one who rose from the dead, is going to raise us from the dead, and he is going to bring us into his kingdom. Our faith is entirely in Jesus and not at all in ourselves. This is Paul's view throughout Philippians. So, just a little aside and really a shepherding comment. If you're here this morning and you think that you're going to be accepted by God because you've lived a pretty good life and you've kept the Ten Commandments, think again. You are not responsible to make yourself worthy before God. You must admit that you are not worthy to be accepted into God's presence and Jesus alone lived like you never did and he can grant to you his righteousness as a gift and he can take on himself all of your disobedience and he can reconcile you to God. Trust Jesus. Don't trust yourself. If Paul doesn't mean make yourself worthy, what does he mean? Well, Paul means that basically God has already given us a calling or an identity, a new identity to live up to. It's an interesting term here. He uses this term live in a way and the, the word live actually has a prefix that means citizen. Live citizens in this way. That's why the New Living Translation translates it as live as citizens of heaven. Because he's talking about a, a political kind of life. And I mean that in terms of a communal, a, a, a citizen kind of lifestyle. In other words, it refers to living in a way in which you fulfill your obligations as being part of a community in which you live. My favorite illustration of this is a silly one. I am man enough to admit that I like the Princess Diaries. In the story, Mia, the main character, doesn't start living like a princess in order to become a princess. No, she finds out that she is a princess and she starts changing her lifestyle to accommodate it. For Christians, it's the same way. It's like a real-life case of the princess diaries. We find out that God has loved us, given his son for us. He has saved us through trusting in Jesus and he's made us a citizen of his eternal kingdom. And your eyes open and you say, wow, God, you have made me royalty? I'm an inheritor of your kingdom? And Paul says, yes, walk worthy of it. Live in a way that fits your, your new identity. And Paul's going to describe two ways then in which we live this out. I highlighted it in the main point, and now we work them out in just a little detail before zeroing in on side by side. The two ways are unity and fearlessness. These two critical facets of a life that's worthy of the gospel is first, be unified. 
In view of the constant opposition to the gospel, we need to be unified. He says, I want to hear that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This is one of the most precious statements on unity in all the Bible. Put it right next to Jesus' prayer for unity in John 17, or David's poem on unity in Psalm 133. Paul's going to describe unity of believers in Ephesians 4 again. I mean, this is just powerful. Here he urges unity of heart and unity in effort. We're going to work that out in just a minute. Secondly, in view of the opposition to the gospel, be fearless. This is going to be verses 28 to 30. Paul's going to say, Christians, don't be frightened. And he's going to say, in any way. Don't be frightened in any way. That reminds me a little bit of how he's going to state a similar absolute command in chapter 4, verse 6. Don't be anxious for anything. So, try counting. Obey this command. Obey this command as you listen to the news, as you endure slander from your unsaved family. Don't fear. At the end of verse 28, Paul actually reminds believers it's God who's chosen them for salvation. And by salvation, he's not merely referring to a past deliverance, but he's referring to the fact that Jesus is going to deliver the entire creation from the curse of sin and death. We will never face utter ruin in hell. Never. Ever. We're going to forever live in Jesus' eternal kingdom with perfect bodies, fully restored hearts that are set on God and others. We have nothing to fear. We're going to be saved, completely saved. Don't fear. Paul says that these are two critical facets of walking worthy of this calling as citizens of heaven. Unity, single-mindedness, team effort, and fearlessness. Now, in conclusion, I want to go back and zero in on that phrase, side by side. I want to think through what it is to live side by side, to stand side by side, to strive side by side together as believers. I think this is an area in which our church needs to grow. I think it's an area in which all of our expectations need to be adjusted according to the scripture. I think it's an area in which I need to grow, not pointing fingers. Greg and I have talked about this in recent months. I actually entered preparation for this message with almost eight pages of notes from conversations between Greg and me. Been chewing on this, praying on this, thinking on this. The matter I'm talking about is relationships within the church. What Paul describes here as standing firm side by side and striving side by side. What kind of relationships should we expect within the church? What kind of relationships should we cultivate? How can we cultivate them? So here in conclusion, I have three observations, three bits of pastoral counsel that I hope you will consider and you will pray over. The first is this. Standing side by side as a church 
requires a solid foundation of unity. That means covenanting together in membership. When Paul says in verse 27 that the church has one spirit and one mind, that means that the church agrees on what's reality and what's important. Their worldview is the same. What's reality? They're in agreement on. What's important? They're in agreement on. I think he's describing here what it means to be a church. He's talking to the church at Philippi. To be a church involves having explicit agreement about what we believe and to have explicit commitment to each other as disciples who are investing in the Great Commission. This is one of the reasons that we require new members at Tri-County to take a members orientation class and then agree with, wholeheartedly agree with our statement of faith and our covenant because we're agreeing about what's true and what's important as followers of Jesus. We want to ensure that all of us have one spirit and one mind when it comes to what is the gospel? What is the truth of the gospel? And do we have the same vision? Are we united in our vision for discipleship? That unbelievers need to embrace the gospel, that we need to share it with them, that we need to invest in getting the gospel to them, that we, in fact, as believers, need to be committed to one another's discipleship, one another's Christ-likeness. We all need to share the same heartbeat. And this is what it means to be a church. So here's what I'm saying. One of the greatest blessings of this past year, and one of the greatest challenges for me as a pastor this past year, has been seeing our attendance increase dramatically. For about the last six months, half of the people in this room, in this hour, are not members. Some of you may come in here and say, wow, this is a huge congregation, maybe compared to what you've come from you might need to realize that on many Sundays, most of the people in here are not Tri-County Bible Church. They've not explicitly said, we agree with this congregation, and we have explicitly committed ourselves to this congregation. So, I want to say, stop dating Let me put it in terms of side-by-side. Don't expect gospel relationships to form so that you really sense that you have a oneness with the people here unless you've explicitly committed to the doctrine and discipleship of this congregation. And this is, I'm going to work backwards, same in dating. Don't expect closeness to come before commitment. Expect closeness to follow commitment. There's nothing worse than being in a dating relationship in which there's just insecurity. Are they going to like me? Are they going to be committed to me? Always sensing that you're being evaluated. It's not fun. Close relationships can't really thrive outside of commitment. And don't expect a close relationship 
to form immediately within commitment. Those of you who've been married for decades know that the first years are years of major adjustment. When Hannah and I moved here, we had been members of a previous church for five years. We had very strong relationships in that church, some relationships that went back to when we were children. And when we came to Tri-County, we came all in, committed. We came here as well with the warmest of welcomes. Nothing was, was wrong in that way. And yet it took almost two years after we were committed members before our relationships started having history, started having roots, started bearing fruit, and for Tri-County to start feeling like home. That's like almost two years after commitment, being really engaged. What I'm saying in this first point is, side-by-side ministry involves commitment. Are you of one mind in terms of our doctrine and our vision for discipleship? Have you committed, saying, I'm not going to date anymore, I'm going to go all in, and then give it time to develop? Secondly, striving side-by-side for the gospel involves not only commitment, but consistent teamwork. Here in verse 27, the term striving can also be translated contending or even fighting. (laughs) Fighting side by side. One of our teammates in Wales says that his favorite mental image of this side by side fighting together is a rugby scrum. Some of you know this. When The whole rugby team forms this like semicircle and they're all locked arm in arm like this. It's a great mental image. Paul's thinking is probably more military than sports, but the sports image is a great one. He's probably thinking in military terms. He's thinking of a community that fights for gospel truth, that fights for Christian growth against the enemy and against temptation, that fights for gospel advance. I should not need to say it, but I do need to say it. When I'm using the concept of fight and when Paul's using the concept of fight, he is not thinking about physical fist fighting. He's not thinking about literal weapons, right? He's talking about engaging ideas, engaging habits, fighting our sin, fighting our habits, our routines, fighting wrong thinking. This is what he's talking about. Believers need to engage in side-by-side habits of prayer for one another and support of one another. Let me put it this way. If you're a member in this congregation, fighting side-by-side means supporting members of our congregation who are in physical decline with prayer or words of encouragement. Fighting side by side, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel means that we support members in our congregation whose spouses are not believers. We pray for them. We encourage them. Sometimes we confront them when they say, I am just so struggling to live peaceably with my spouse. And we say, you got to go back and you got to take care of that. You got to apologize 
It's what it means to fight side by side. We fight side by side next to those who are struggling to defend their faith. Maybe college student says, I'm dealing with kids who think this way and that way and that way. Or with believers who are falling back into old sin addictions. This takes the form of counseling. See, side by side is not simply we like to get together. It's that we are fighting for a common goal and we are investing in that regularly. It involves consistent teamwork. Support, counsel, prayer. Are you engaging in these kinds of habits? And I'm speaking right now to about half the people in this room who are Tri-County Bible Church. I know many of you are. Third, bit of pastoral counsel here at the end is the goal of side-by-side relationships is not the relationships themselves instead it's the gospel's advance both evangelism and discipleship the gospel advancing among the lost and the gospel deepening in the lives of christians and this is where i think we need to set accurate expectations let me put it like this I right now know solid Christians who have followed Jesus for decades and yet at present they have no close friends. They may have moved from a church in which they did have close friends or maybe their two closest friends are now with the Lord or their friends moved Or they experienced a close church friendship for a decade and then their church experienced tensions and they parted ways. I know people in every one of those situations. I've grieved with them even recently. Do you know that it's possible to serve the Lord well in a church and faithfully engage in side-by-side relationships even when you don't experience any degree of deep personal relationship? Now, let me go to the other side of the issue. I'm going to come back to this. I'm convinced that even this side of heaven, every close human relationship, including the best Christian marriage, still leaves us with so much unfulfilled longing for closer and more personal relationship. I think it's actually an unrealistic expectation to think that we are going to experience any relationship in this life that's really totally fulfilling. Only the Lord, our relationship with him lasts. It would be very helpful, I think, for us to gauge our expectations for our relationships using Paul's own imagery of military service, fighting side by side. Some of you have personally experienced this. You could stand up and testify to this. When you were called into the armed services, you probably didn't know anyone in your unit. And what did you start doing? You just started fighting together, training together, going to meetings together, going into active service together. You don't go in really with the expectation, I'm going to become great friends with these guys. And many soldiers 
don't develop close friends. Some soldiers do. So many soldiers have experienced after fighting side by side that strong relationships, even lifelong relationships, develop out of it. It's not that they get together every Friday for movies, but they keep in touch. Every couple months, they're keeping in touch with a phone call, with writing. They're there for each other. If ever I'm needed, I'm there for you. It's that close. I think we should have this kind of vision for our relationships at Tri-County. We come in, and we're called to fight together side by side. And we need to be consistent in our habits of teamwork, praying for each other, singing together, praying with each other, learning together, serving one another, finding out where the needs are, and as we're able, investing, having no expectation that, you know what, my closest friends need to be here. But many of us are going to experience that over years, strong, deep, lifelong relationships emerge. C.S. Lewis wrote a famous book called The Four Loves. You can actually listen to C.S. Lewis himself read it. It's one of the, I think, only books of his that you can listen to him read. His second chapter is devoted to friendship. And in that chapter, he observes that friendship is discovered and deepened through a common interest. I think it is one of the most valuable observations he makes in the book. These are his words. Lovers, this is a romantic kind of love that he's distinguishing from friendship. Lovers are always talking to one another about their love. Friends hardly ever talk to one another about their friendship. Lovers are normally face-to-face, absorbed in each other. Friends, side-by-side, absorbed in some common interest. For Christians, the common interest in which we're absorbed is the precious gospel of Jesus. So, if you're not committed, explicitly committed to us, come on. Commit. Stand side by side. And if you are committed, then keep fighting side by side. Let's pray. Father, strengthen us so that the gospel would be highlighted through our relationships. And God, I pray that you would bless those in here who are not members, who choose to join with strength for years to come as a result of linking with our congregation and fighting side by side. I pray as well, Lord, that you would give many believers in our congregation realistic expectations and patience as we seek to serve you next to one another. And I pray that in time, you would develop close relationships for many of us. And until you do, may we be faithful.